Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. turned it on over there, and then I guess when I put it in my pocket, I turned it back off. This is a two-part message, so we're, you're, if you weren't here last week or you didn't hear last week's message, we're kind of just jumping in, because we can't look back. There's just too much ground to cover, and frankly, even that, we're not going to be able to address every verse in this passage, but rather the idea as a whole. So last week, we talked about how uh, the first coming of Jesus brought hope for salvation for all. Today, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus and how it brings salvation, hope, hope is the word we've been using, hope for the citizens of the kingdom of God. There's a big difference between the first hope and the second hope. The first hope is that there's opportunity in Jesus Christ to be forgiven for sin. The second hope is the hope that comes after judgment. I was talking to Steve and Rick about this right before the service, and I said, I hope this works. I didn't put it in my notes. I'm going for it, Steve. In, in my mind, think of it like this, and this is, this is not an exact parallel, okay? But we're going to reference Noah and the ark in just a minute. If the first coming of Jesus is hope that all may get on the ark, once you're on the ark, there's only hope for life after the ark for those on the ark. Does that make sense? So today, we're talking about the hope that comes for those who are on the ark. And that is those who receive hope through the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about what that hope 
brings. Would you guys pray with me as we uh, enter into our, our time of teaching? Lord, I pray that today you would uh, just give us quiet hearts. Help us to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us sober-mindedness, that we would um, not get caught up in controversy that surrounds discussions of your second coming, but rather, Lord, that we would hear the words that are said for what they say, and let us be encouraged by them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if I was to take a survey of the room, list the 10 verses you think you learned first as a kid, I wonder what they'd be. Now, I don't know, but I would imagine that most of you learned at least parts of the Roman road as the first 10, 15 verses that you learned. I know one of the first verses that I learned was Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. I think that's got to be in the top 10 for most of us. But, but I wonder, for the wages of sin is death. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the wages of sin is death? I think for many of us, there is a big disconnect between the life that we live and the life of the millions of people around us, billions of people around us. There's a disconnect between that life and the statement that the wages of sin is death. We were just talking about this week in the office. In our culture... We don't really like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We like to create space around the subject. Death is something that happens to other people. It's not something that happens to us. Now, intellectually, we know that's not true, but that distance is how we plan for the future. It's how we uh, process the day and enjoy the day without worry. So we recognize the reality of the statement from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin are indeed payable by death, but we like to keep that death over there at a distance. Now sometimes to keep that distance, we look at Romans 6.23 and we simply spiritualize the idea of death to only refer to hell. All right, It makes us feel like death is a little less real if it's not physical. Now we don't know what hell is like we just know that it's going to be really bad and that we don't want to go there, right? It's this place that we can't visit. We can't like look over the edge and see what it's like. No one's ever been to hell and come back to give us a report. So the idea of hell is kind of hard to, to get our minds around. So again, we, we acknowledge its existence, but to understand it as the death that's deserved because of sin It's something that we accept as fact, even though it's hard for us to really get our head around. So if we see the wages of sin, not just as a spiritual death, but as a physical death, then even that feels disconnected from our everyday lives. Now, we all know that we're going to die someday, but how often do we sit around and contemplate our mortality in relation to our sin? Now, here's what I mean by that. How often do you find yourself having told a lie or having uh, a lustful thought, or exploding in rage, and then in a quiet moment say, I deserve to be executed by God for that. I mean, how often do we do that? I, I know I don't do it very often. So we put this disconnect between the sentence of the wages of sin is death between us and the reality of that expression, because it is both 
a physical death and a spiritual death. I think, here's the reason I'm going around this, I think we all embrace a bit of cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, we as followers of Jesus accept that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But on the other hand, since, since that death is, is both spiritual in hell and later in our natural lives or natural death, we separate ourselves from the stark reality that sin deserves death and because of our sin, we deserve to die. So the bigger context of Romans 6, I think, helps us a little bit. The death spoken of in verse 23 feels a little bit more tangible when we expand the context. So let's look at Romans 6, 16, and 20 and 21. 6, 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now skip to 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time? <clears throat> but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. Now, the idea of seeing ourselves as slaves to sin apart from Christ, I think is a little bit helpful as we think about this idea of the wages of sin being death. You see, apart from Christ, we are compelled to sin. Apart from Christ, sin is our master. And that means that apart from Christ, we die a spiritual death constantly as we live in bondage to the master of sin. Apart from Christ, we simply do what we think is best. Now, sometimes that is a uh, good thing. We, we, we do what's good for other people. We actually do the right thing. But Romans 2 says something interesting. Our conscience both defends us and condemns us. Now, here, here's what that means. When I do the right thing, when I do the good that I know I ought to do, guess what that means? All those other times when I don't, I prove I know better. So our conscience defends us. I do the right thing sometimes, but it condemns us. I don't always do the right thing. And truly, I know better than to continue to do that evil. Yet, it's the evil that I keep on doing. That's Romans 7. But the fact remains that Scripture teaches us in Romans 6.23 that all our sins deserve death. And this is not new. This is how it's been from the beginning. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they would surely die. That's Genesis 2, 17. Yet in his mercy, when they did sin, he didn't strike them dead. Hallelujah. He could have. But instead, he denied them the tree of life, which seems to have provided some kind of earthly immortality, and instead of striking them dead, he covered the shame of their nakedness with animal skins. That's Genesis 3.21. So the thing is, Romans 6.23, as much as it says the wages of sin is death, you've all been waiting for the other half of the verse, right? It, 
it continues. There is more to the story. So let's look at Romans 6, 22 and 23. It says, but now that you have been set free, remember sin was our master, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in Christ, we have been set free from sin. Amen? Amen. That is the hope of the first coming of Jesus. That by faith in him, we can be free from the bondage of sin. Through the forgiveness of our sin and the sacrifice of Jesus, of his resurrection, we've been sanctified, we've been declared holy, and we are given eternal life. But we also look forward to the day when sin, that evil old master, is totally destroyed once and for all, leaving us with an eternity where sin and death is no more. That is the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. When sin itself is destroyed. Now last week, we looked at, uh, as we looked at uh, Luke 17, 20 through 37, we identified two hopes. Again, the first uh, coming of Jesus brings hope for all. That's that we might have salvation in Jesus Christ. The, but then his second hope is that through Jesus' second coming, he brings hope for citizens of the kingdom of God. That is for believers. So what we've been talking about so far in, in Romans uh, much of what we've been discussing really has to do with the hope of Jesus' first coming. Again, Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death for us so that we might have forgiveness. And so that God can be both just in punishing our sin through Jesus and he can be the justifier as he declares us righteous and holy, not by any work of our own, but by counting the work of Christ on our behalf through our faith in Jesus Again, that's the hope of the first coming of Jesus. In his first coming, he came to make peace between God and those who place their faith in him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not, ha- shall not perish but have everlasting life. And if you're like me and you learn that in the King James and then in the NIV, when you say it, you mush them together, right? So that, that's the way I learned that verse. Now, we love to look at John 3.16 and emphasize that part, but have eternal life. But the thing is, we just often mentally skip over the perish part, the die part. We skip right past it. So today, as we look at Luke 17, I want us to talk about the hope that comes with this perishing. That is weird. I hope that by the end of the day, when we're done, you look at this idea of the wages of sin is death a little bit differently. When, that you look at the idea of this perishing a little bit differently, and you see the hope that comes with Jesus in his coming judgment. There is hope that comes with the judgment and destruction 
of sin and evil. So, last week we talked about how Jesus' first coming brought us salvation. And I referenced how salvation in Jesus Christ is an invitation to get on Noah's ark before the flood. Christ is our eternal ark. We are saved from our sins and we are made right with God. But we are also saved from the coming wrath and judgment of God. We are saved from the coming wrath and judgment of God. You see, part of our hope in the second coming of Jesus is that we long for a new beginning. We long for a world without sin, where that old master is dead. We long for a world where all receive justice. We long for a world where the effects of sin do not touch us. We want no more sickness, no more mourning, no more pain, no more death. We long for a world where all worship God and there is perfect unity and love under the banner of Christ as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And what that means, church, is that this world, to achieve that hope, this world has to pass away. This whole world has earned the wages of sin. And what is the wage of sin? Death. So when Jesus returns, he does not merely save us in this preservation from the wrath of God. He destroys sin completely, permanently. These are two motions of the same action. God's wrath is poured out, and we are saved from his wrath. But that wrath has a purpose, and that purpose should give us hope. So look with me again at how Jesus describes the day of his coming. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 26 through 30. It says, Just as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, in this passage, Jesus tells us what the day when the Son of Man is revealed will be like. The, the verb tense here is future, what it will be like. Now, Jesus already told us that the kingdom was in the midst of them back in verse 21. We looked at that last week, right? So this is something else. That is what is now and what was in the life of Jesus, right? But he's going to be telling us about something in the future, okay? So verse 26 says, so it will be. 
Jesus points us to the future when he says, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. This is Jesus' return. This is his second coming. And he gives us two examples or two parts of, of, well, two examples and two parts of each example uh, that we see. So the two examples are the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And what do we see in these examples? First, some are saved. And second, that there's judgment on the wicked. We see that in both examples. Now, as we talked about this, the first coming of Jesus is the opportunity for salvation. Some are saved. The second coming is Jesus' judgment, the sulfur from heaven, the flood on the earth. Now, we love to focus on the goodness of salvation in Christ and and church, (laughs) rightly so, Right? We should focus on the salvation that comes. But what I hope you see today is that there is goodness in the judgment of God as well for those who are in the kingdom. As followers of Jesus, we can hope in the salvation that we have in Jesus from his first coming, and we can hope in God's perfect justice and the destruction of sin that comes with his judgment. Because that's when our enemy... Sin itself is completely destroyed. So our passage in Luke presents two opportunities for hope. The hope of salvation from sin at his first coming, but the hope that sin and sin's consequences will be destroyed with Jesus' second coming. So let's look at these two examples that Jesus gives us of what his return will be like. He says his return will be like the flood of Noah that destroyed the whole earth. And that his coming will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't think about his return that way very often, do we? When we think about the return of Christ, we put a lot of emphasis on our salvation, which is good, which is good, which is good, which is why I keep talking about the hope, the hope of the first. But there is this second component. If you look at our text in Luke 17, Jesus doesn't mess around. Destroyed them all is the language. There's a lot of emphasis here on the destruction, on the judgment. We're not going to spend time dissecting this portion of the passage, but how does the passage end? It ends with, where did they all go, the disciples asked Jesus. And Jesus' answer is... Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Oh, man, that sounds like so much hope, Brandon. Thank you. What I want you guys to see is that that judgment being poured out is rough. But there's two things. It is deserved, and there is life after judgment for those who are in the kingdom. So what I want to do for just a minute is look at these two examples in Genesis. I want to look at the example of Noah and what the world was like before God sent his judgment. I want us to look at the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were and the sin that was so rampant there. And then I want us to think about the goodness of God in destroying sin and how that's good for those who survived. Let's look at life before the flood. 
What's he say? You don't have to turn back there. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And he says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So what was it like in the days of Noah? Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. This is before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. How bad was it? It grieved the soul of God. It grieved God. God is his soul. I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into that. It grieved the Lord. Every intention and the thoughts and the heart was only evil continually. What was the the scene in Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed them? Let's read in Genesis 18, starting in verse 20 through 26. It says, Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men, and these men here are angels of the Lord that have been uh, revealed themselves as humans, right? So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. When Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. What I love here is, what do we see? We see that the city is desperately wicked. And then Abraham's like, but there could be some good people there. God, you're righteous, you're just. Don't destroy the whole city if there's 50 people. And then he's like, uh, but if he'll go for 50, maybe if there's 45. Maybe if there's 30. And he continues God in his grace and mercy to lower the number that Abraham's requesting all the way till we get to Genesis 18.32. Then he said, O Lord, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for this, and then God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. So ultimately, despite the wickedness of this city that is so great, that God says it deserves his judgment. He says he's just and good and will not pour out his wrath if there's even 10. Now, for time's sake, we, we cannot read all of chapter 19, but feel free to read that on your own this week. So God sends these two angels uh, to evaluate the sin of the people, and then things go bananas. Needless to say, they did not find 10 righteous people. 
Okay, Lot, who's in the town, is Abraham's nephew, and he ends up saving these two angels who, as we find in the story, didn't actually need saving and end up saving Lot in the end, right? The people of the town wanted to rape these two angels who seemed to have, like I said, revealed themselves as men. So at, at this uh, point in the scene, the angels render their judgment on the town. Genesis chapter 19, verses 12 through 13 goes like this. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? These are the angels talking to Lot. Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So here's what I want us to see. In the days of Noah, Wickedness had grown and grown throughout the whole earth. And in the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the valley that these two towns were in had become a total abomination. Not even ten righteous people could be found. But God did save Noah and his family. But God did save Lot and his family. But his Judgment and justice was good and right. Look back again at Luke 17, 26 through 32. I'm going to read it again. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained, down, rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is in the housetop with his goods in his house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. It's the idea there of destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. It's coming, and you cannot escape it. It says in verse 26 and verse 30, so it will be. And so what will it be like in the days of the Son of Man? When we think about the future, the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, what will it be like? Everyone will think it's fine. Everybody will think it's great. It'll just be business as usual. And then what? The flood. Fire from heaven. Just like God's judgment will bring destruction on the earth before Noah and on the earth at the time of Lot, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. I got a feeling some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, Pastor Brandon, you lost me. Where are you going? I thought this was supposed to be a sermon about the hope that comes with the second coming. And it is. But the hope of the second coming is not the same as the hope of the first coming. The hope of the second coming is only hope for the citizens 
of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think back to where we were last week in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. It says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security. What, what did we just see? Right before the days of Noah, right before the days of Lot, right? There's peace and security. Then, what? Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains came upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape what? The judgment of God. This is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 17. Everybody will be deceived into thinking everything's fine, and then one day, boom, you won't miss it. It will be obvious when the day of judgment comes. Luke 17 says it will be like lightning filling the sky. Everyone can see. But Paul goes on, and he reminds us of the hope that we have in the first coming of Jesus. It says this in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Amen? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Okay, so because we have faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God, the forgiver of our sins, we are not destined for wrath, but we are destined to obtain salvation. Remember what we read last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now I'm going to get you guys excited, okay? All right, verse 15. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Again, very loud, very obvious. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is just like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, where God says, if there's 50 people there, I won't destroy the city. If there's 10 people there who are righteous, I will not destroy the city. In this case, what happens before the wrath of God is poured out? The righteous are taken to heaven. They're gone. They're not there. That's the hope of the first coming of Jesus. The wrath of God is going to be poured out, and we're not going to be there. Jesus says the same thing. He gives us the same promise in Matthew chapter 24. He says this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Again, this is Jesus talking. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And what's it say in verse 31? And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what does Jesus say? He says there will be tribulation. Things are going to be hard. The effects of sin are going to be brutal on the earth. And then comes God's judgment. The sun will be darkened. The moon will give no light. 
The stars will fall from heaven, and the people of earth will mourn. They will mourn because when Jesus returns, he will bring destruction on the earth because of all the earth's wickedness. But what does Jesus say about his elect? What does he say about his chosen, those who believe in him? What does he say about them? He says that he will send out his angels to gather us, those who believe in Jesus. All will be gathered to him. That's exactly what we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. This is the hope of the first coming of Jesus realized. The hope of the first coming of Jesus realized. We are saved from the wrath of God in Christ Jesus. But what do we see from Romans 6? For the wages of sin is death. That's the wrath of God. For the wages of sin is the wrath of God. Same as in the days of Noah. Same as in the days of Lot. Same as in the day of the return of the Son of Man. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those who are alive at the return of Christ will not taste the death that comes with the wrath of God on the wickedness of the sin of man. And even those who have died will be raised from the dead so that we can say, O death, where is your sting? Because there's no sting. Though we were once children of wrath, like we read last week in Ephesians, we are saved from the wrath of God when we meet him in the air. But the wages of sin are still death. And his first coming, Christ bore that cost for us. He was the ransom for many. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Through faith, Jesus paid the cost of our death. But we are citizens, and now we are citizens in the kingdom of God. We were citizens of the kingdom of God now, but we are also citizens in the kingdom of God that he is bringing. We are citizens in the kingdom of God now, but we are also citizens in the kingdom of God that he is bringing. That is not so for those who are not in Christ. They will pay for their own sin. And the whole world will pay for its own sin. I want to read another longer portion of Scripture. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you want to 2 Peter chapter 3. We read part of this last week, but I want you to see the whole context because it references Noah again. But I want you to see how Peter discusses the same topic. It says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. You see that reference to Noah? But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Okay, the day of God brings what? We just saw it again. Again we saw it. The, the day of the Lord brings the destruction of the world. Judgment on sin. Okay, but what's it say in verse 12? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away and burn. But according to his promise, what are we waiting for? We are waiting for new heavens and new earth which righteousness dwells. Where's our hope? Our hope comes in what's next. The hope of the second coming of Jesus is the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, what did we read in Romans chapter 6? That sin is our master. And yes, in the first coming of Jesus, we've been set free from that old master, right? But what we have the promise of in the judgment and destruction of this world is that the old master's sin is dead. Amen? Amen. Man, that is the promise. And with the death of that master's sin comes the death of everything else. Everything that's under sin's reign is destroyed. Now that sounds terrible because we know these people. We know these people. Oh, and that should grieve us. That should hurt us. Because we know these people. But has he returned yet? No. And he is not slow as some understand slowness. But he wishes that they would come to repentance. The doors of the ark are opened. He wouldn't have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah if there had been ten righteous people. He is gracious. He is merciful. But the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah went up to him, and it was so great. The sins of the earth grieved him. And in his justice and in his holiness, he could not abide any longer. And so God, in his grace and mercy for those who were on the ark, 
for those of us who are in Christ, that we may know freedom from the master of sin, from the presence of pain and death. He destroyed all of sin. He will destroy all of sin and everything that it touches. That is the hope of the second coming of Jesus. When he comes riding on the horse with the sword coming out of his mouth to slay the nations, we may sit there and go, that sounds gruesome, that sounds gross, but it is God's provision for a world where there is no more sin, where there is no more death. Listen to how he talks about this in Revelation. This is the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 21. Listen to this, and I want you to see, he's going to describe how great it is, and then he's going to end with judgment. And what that tells us is, to achieve the peace that comes with God for eternity requires the destruction of sin and everything it touches. Listen to this in Romans 21, oops, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So where does it begin? Where does it begin? This little verse. And I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away. Where does it begin? It begins with judgment. It begins with destruction. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, don't you love all this loud stuff? I do. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. For the former things have passed away. Verse 1, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God is bringing his judgment and destruction on this, worth, on this world because that is the old way. That is the former way. And we have a hope for a world where that is not true anymore. And the only way for that to not be true anymore is for it to be gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, for those who aren't citizens of the kingdom of God, for those who weren't on the ark, so to speak, those who did not heed the opportunity of the first coming of Jesus, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We don't like that part. We don't like that part. But with that part is the destruction of all the things that we hate. 
of all these things that make our life miserable. For the wages of sin is death. And as long as we are in a world that is filled with sin, we're going to continue to feel the effects of sin. We will know death. We will know pain. We will know sorrow. We will know heartache. This is the former way. This is where we are. But by God's grace, he has saved us. He has set us free from that master, sin, so that we don't have to walk forward in bondage anymore. We don't have to. But man, if I was to ask you right now, is there a sin in your life that, that you know you still struggle with? That as, as soon as I said that, all of you went, yep, that one. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's, I don't know, stealing. I have no idea. Maybe it's envy. Whatever that thing is that you grab onto, no matter how hard you submit that thing to the Lord over and over again, you hear it. You hear it. Don't you want victory? Like real, real victory? We have that in some measure now. We have it completely on the other side of God's judgment. Because sin is gone. It's done. It's over. He will be your God and you will be his child. He will be with you forever. That sin, over. Have you ever been hurt by somebody? Has somebody ever crushed you? And they never, you never received justice for what they did. Somehow they were able to evade the justice of humanity. And your heart breaks that they were able to get away with something so horrible. On the other side of eternity, on the other side of Jesus' coming, nobody's getting past his justice. You, you can have peace knowing that all sin was dealt with. We don't think about that very often, but that is peace. All sin dealt with. Either you paid for it yourself, or Jesus paid the price of that sin for you. All sin dealt with. Peace with God forever. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we have two great hopes. Hope that comes with the first coming of Jesus Christ, that, that we may have forgiveness, that we may know the presence of the Lord here and now as his kingdom is present. But we may also have hope that, that one day what has been inaugurated or begun through the work of Jesus Christ will be complete. And, and he won't just be with us in our hearts. Though that is wonderful. We get to walk the streets with him. We get to talk with him. We get to be with him. He describes the relationship as a father to child. 
That is our great hope in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So as we, as we close, I want you to reflect on that. Lord, where is my sense of urgency in the present? Because the eternal consequences of not placing my faith in you are dire. I want you to ask yourself, am I trusting the Lord for his salvation? If you're a believer and you're here, you've already placed your hope in Jesus, how often do we set our hope on the future that all things will be made right? Man, that should be a, a source of peace. Man, that should be a, a source of comfort. That no matter what happens in this world, this life is but a vapor. But what is the hope? All things will be made right when he comes back. No matter what goes wrong today, there is hope that it will be set right in the future. That should give us optimism. That is something that we can encourage each other with. When we are in the pit of our hard thing, when our burden is great, our brother or sister in Christ can put their arm around us and say, this is not the end. There is more. There is hope for the future. Hope now in Christ and hope for the future that all things will be made right. That is our hope as citizens of the kingdom of God. As the praise team comes, I just want to remind you that the altar is open. This is our time uh, to lay our, our burdens down before the Lord. I don't know how he's calling you to respond. But if you're here today and, and uh, you, you need to do business with the Lord, you need some help, some encouragement, somebody to talk to, I'm here. I can direct you to one of our elders or, or one of the other pastoral staff. We would love to talk with you more about what it is to, to follow Christ and work through any of those things you're struggling with. If you're here and your burden has nothing to do with anything I talked about, then we have the opportunity to lay those things down before the Lord with the hope that one day all things will be made right. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for the way you love us. We are thankful that you are coming again. That this is not the end. This is not all we hope for. We hope for something greater. Lord, we thank you that you're going to do away with this battle against sin. That you will win. That you will have the victory. Let us rest in the comfort and hope that comes from knowing you will return. Lord, help us to be a church that has urgency, to know that, that when you come, it will be to bring judgment on those who don't know you. Help us, Lord, to have hearts that want to share your good news with others, knowing that the stakes are high. Oh, but Lord, the rewards are good by placing their, our faith in you and becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen.